1: Hello and welcome to the Final Furlong Podcast. I'm Emma Kennedy. It is great to have your company. British horse racing has a rich heritage, a tradition that spans centuries, and a passion that runs deep within the nation's culture. But behind the scenes, trainers, owners, jockeys, and stable staff face an array of challenges that shape the landscape of this incredible sport. To tackle some of these, I'm delighted to say that we've got an esteemed guest, a trainer known for his expertise, dedication, and passion for the sport, who's had an incredibly successful career and I'm sure will have many more successful years to come. Huey Morrison, welcome to the Final forum Podcast. Good day to you. Uh, and great to have your company. I was interviewing you for Talk Sport last week and we ended up talking for about 20 minutes afterwards uh, and, and your, your views and your thoughts were just so insightful and so interesting that I was very, very keen to get to talk to you on the podcast and I'm delighted you've taken the time to do so. It's pretty well documented at this point, but... Could you outlay for us just how difficult it is and what, what difficulties a trainer is facing in the United Kingdom in 2023?
0: Well, there's a huge, you know, there's a huge amount of challenges. Obviously, the, the, the greatest one is the financial challenge because the, the rewards from um, training have been squeezed because our costs have gone up uh, exponentially and prize money hasn't. And the effect of prize money not going up is that one uh, we can't chart the owners are going to be less likely to want to pay what is what is reasonable in terms of the costs we incur but um, also we get less percentages and actually at the top end the winning percentage has actually gone down in the last two or three years from ten percent to about seven and a half percent so yeah yes and then we are you know over above that yeah we have sort of a great layer extra layer over the years i've been training of administration um which has been dumped upon us by the bha um and so instead of having two one person in the office we have two people in the office and you know it's uh you know the world has changed we recognize that in terms of health and safety and all that but um you know we don't get rewarded for these extra costs we're incurring
1: and the costs are increasing Not just in the world of racing, but in life in general. There's an energy crisis as prices spiral out of control. Inflation is well documented at this point and has been covered by most of the current affairs shows. James O'Brien is talking about it on a regular basis. Things have doubled in price in just a year. Well, if that's every day-to-day life and buying basic groceries that we all need, well, that's obviously going to affect you because it's going to affect how much it's costing for feed, veterinary charges, and all of the other charges that are... Uh, involved in being a racehorse trainer, they've gone up exponentially as well, whereas the prize money not only stays the same, it's actually decreasing. So just how difficult is it to run a yard now?
0: Well, I, I think it's, um, you know, I'm lucky enough to be uh, old enough that I I don't have a lot of debt. I own my yard, so I don't have those costs incurred, either rent or major mortgage costs. And um, and Basically, I can't afford to either pay myself a salary other than the minimum wage, or pay myself rent. Um, you know, we try to do things properly. We look after our staff. We house a lot of our staff. Uh, a lot of it is shared accommodation, so you can't. You have to. Uh, you can't divide the chart the costs up. So, at the employer, you have to take that hit. So, the likes of heating has gone up hugely. Um, So, you know, we're all we're all breaking even on a business basis. It's question, how do you make the business work? Well, we I think we sweated the assets as much as we can and we are now losing money. And so one day something will have to give. And I think you wonder how some people survive.
1: Well, that's the thing. And the problem is that some of them aren't. We have a number of young trainers who have left the UK, either they had begun their careers or were about to and decided it's not sustainable for them or they couldn't see a future for themselves. So they've gone to France, they've gone to Australia, they've gone to America, but there were already existing trainers who've been squeezed out of the market as well. And uh, the prize money situation is is clearly a very big one, but you're only going to get prize money if you're winning. And we're not talking about a charity here. This isn't uh, handouts. Like, racing is a competitive sport. Everybody who's in it is is obviously passionate about the sport that they're involved in. But you're not going to get prize money unless everything is thriving. Well, it's only going to thrive if you have the ability to to run a yard to its absolute peak capacity. And if people are under pressure for financing, if people are under pressure to be able to, to get the very best of everything from staff to various different facilities to look after racehorses. How are they supposed to compete in in this climate? Um, I don't think it's ever been as difficult to train a racehorse as it is in this day and age in the UK.
0: No, and what's happened is people survive from trading, trainers survive from trading horses, you know, commissions from buying and selling horses, which on the face of it sounds okay, but can be quite unhealthy. Because it might be the only way they are um, surviving, um, and as a result, they might take a few risks, which might be inappropriate. Uh, and you know, we're all run by sort of agents and managers now, um, which is sound, sounds great, but they cost money, so they they take their cut along the way in, the, in a lot of respects, whether it's for the training of horses or the buying and selling of horses, and you know. A lot of businesses survive on horses being sold, sometimes do, in a two, three, two or three-year-old career. Um, and, you know, and I, I don't think that's a very healthy way the industry's gone.
1: No, and, and that brings me to prestige versus prize money, because we've talked about prize money and the lack thereof in the United Kingdom on the Final Forum podcast since this show's inception. This isn't something new. Uh, this is a topic that has been well-floated and well-discussed for a very, very long time in the industry. And yet it it appears as though, or at least it seemed back then, that you couldn't get it through to the BHA's head that this was, this was a crisis and this was something that needed to be dealt with. And even uh, many people who are supporters of racing would argue, well, it's the prestige of British racing. You're always going to have owners who want to be part of this sport and the prize money doesn't really matter to them because it means more to win a race in Britain than it does to win one in America or Australia. That argument just doesn't hold up in 2023 anymore. Certainly not when if you have an owner in your yard and you've got a a nice middle distance prospect and that horse wins a maiden, you already know that owner is going to get a phone call from an owner in Hong Kong or Australia or in America making them a sizable offer Because those jurisdictions, the prize... And look, we're never going to get to that level because their funding model is very different. But those jurisdictions have owners that not only have wealth, but the industry itself is providing them with more wealth because the prize money is is there. So that puts even more pressure on a trainer like yourself because if you manage to unearth a good horse, somebody else in another jurisdiction is going to put in an offer for that horse fairly
0: quickly. Yes, and uh, it's a it's an you don't have a you lose that you obviously you lose the future income from that horse, whether it's training fees or percentage of that or of of of, win, of winning. So you then have to start again. So if there's a in the you know when I started training I'd probably have a greater percentage of five, six I and even mean, seven year old handicappers, which you know win their two races a year. Um and the the, the difference between the prize money and the cost of training has increased enormously. You, you know, you might win a couple of races and not to a 75 80s and you win, you know, seven grand, but the cost of the horse in training, by the time it's been racing a few times, you pay for insurance, you're, you're getting to, um, you're heading towards 30 grand. Previously that would have been half that. And, you know, the difference would have been 10 grand and now it's 25 grand. Um, so, yeah, you know, and a lot, you know, what, another point I should have made, you know, trainers surviving because they don't have enough staff. Um, there are a lot of race, you know, it's a well-known problem within the industry and a lot of other manual jobs that, that just aren't the staff out there. So corners are cut, which shouldn't be cut. And that's, you know, trainers survive because they're probably right, not only feeding them, mucking them out, uh, riding them and then driving the box, and you know, I think some trainers are really being fo- about to jump over the cliff. To, you know, the BHA go on and on and on about uh, mental well welfare, welfare, but they actually haven't couldn't care a stuff about the trainers. At least, of all, when they when the integrity department gets involved.
1: What do you mean by by that? When the integrity department gets involved, how how difficult can things get when they're?
0: Well, when 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 some you know you have a positive test or something, they treat you as a criminal when actually it might be nothing to do with you, um, and they they uh, they talk as if they they help you, but actually at the end of the day they do everything possible not to help you because they want to keep it simple. A positive test, is a positive test, and they're really trying to find the culprit, whether it's uh, uh, when it's usually an external problem or, or uh, is.
1: Contaminated feed.
0: Yeah. They, they pay. They, you know, they do a bit, but it, it's a sort of lip service they pay. So they, they, are quite good at, um, I'd say, suppressing the evidence.
1: Ooh, because obviously we need a clean sport, and I'm not so naive as to think that somebody isn't manipulating the system. But the the fact is, you can't have uh, a racing industry thrive, nor can you have the integrity of it being questioned. So trainers have to be tested. Trainers, Their horses have to be tested. Um, however, if the vast majority, in, in my experience, of positive test results is a contaminated feed supply, or some kind of contamination got into a drink or, or something, it wasn't uh, an, in, an intentional... Effort to try to dope a racehorse—certainly not the vast majority of the time—and uh, if every single time a, a positive test result is being treated, where you are basically almost being rounded up by the FBI and CIA, uh, that's that's not the best way of handling it. While at the same time, we need we need to be able to take the right necessary steps to ensure that the integrity of the sport is protected at all costs.
0: Yes, I, you know, we it, it's in every tra- it's in the trainers interest that we have a clean industry as much as much as anybody any anyone um and what uh, is it difficult is to um you know we have you know strict liability and total and total responsibility you know anybody can go in stuff uh walk into a race course box of some other some trainer give it something and th- you know, the, you know, the trainer is then totally, utterly liable, because even though the racecourses in Syria have security and cameras, it is up to the trainer to, to ensure that the staff sit outside their box, even if it's snowing, raining, uh, <laughs> freezing, uh, 24/7 when the horse is at the at the stable. So if it's an overnight stay, um yard, you really, you know, the, the, the ex, you're expected. To do too much for what we get, you know, what we can provide, really.
1: Yeah, and even in, in Ireland, there was a famous incident with Charles Burns, uh, and the CCTV was was well, the CCTV may very well have been the Ted Walsh issue, actually. Um, but I, I know that came back around for the Charles Burns story, where he ended up being banned for six months. That CCTV issue has still not been resolved in the Republic of Ireland. So on one hand, you know, that's the Irish regulatory body saying, you must do this, you must do that, you must do the other. But then they themselves aren't actually backing that up with action. And a similar thing could be said about the UK and the lack of CCTV, high quality CCTV in British racecourses.
0: And the management of it. The racecourses are under, uh, uh, under the rules of racing. I meant to keep it for so long. But, there's, you know, when it, push comes to shove, the magic times when it's become important... Um, it's not there or it's been fudged or there's something something wrong with it and at the end of the day uh, you can actually see a well known criminal go into somebody's box some horse's box but unless you actually see them administering the drug whether it's by mouth or by injection um, the trainer remains responsible Um, so uh, you know a case that was the case up at newcastle not so long ago mm. the trainer was still responsible even though people were was, was inappropriate people were seen to go into this horse's box the trainer still got fined and, you know, so you know what i'm th- you know strict re- strict responsibility um mm. is that coupled with the the anonymous email telephone li- line is a, is a is a sort of Damocles hovering over every trainer because any anybody who wants to uh get revenge on a trainer can guess somehow couldn't quite easily drug a horse in whether it's in a yard or in a uh, at the stables and that's could be you know the, you're actually they' they're creating a criminal uh, uh, they're assisting the BHA's uh um anonymous telephone line is actually uh, Advancing criminality,
1: and then when there is proof of misdeeds from somebody else, it can be just described as well. It's circumstantial, so unless you actually have the footage of the guy administering that drug to that racehorse, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter that they're a known criminal; they get to walk away. Um, that that is that is a, a fairly depressing situation. Do you feel as though the BHA are lacking in this? That there isn't really leadership from them to. To try to resolve that issue and, and to put in in in, in place uh, a more robust set of circumstances to defend racing uh, and to protect horses and trainers from ill intent like that.
0: Yeah, I think they should you know they should spend there should be within the BHA a the integrity department um, a they have an investigatory team but they just investigate what's happened they play you know they do the basics but they don't have a group of people naturally come out and say no we know the guy didn't do it and we think we know who did do it and that's the end of that but no no they always take it to the nth degree whereby a trainer because because they have this strict liability law uh, responsibility uh, rule they don't they don't really need to help us so yes there needs to be a change of mindset as well as a department within the the integrity department. But, you know, the trouble is the integrity department are law unto themselves. They are not, uh, they are totally unaccountable as far as I can work out. Um, Nobody can hold them to account. And if you do hold them to account, they don't like it.
1: So it's perfectly okay for them to question every little minute detail that a trainer does but if you start to ask about their governance of the sport or you question their method of investigation, that might not go very
0: well. That goes down very badly. And when it, and if you find them out, the, the correspondence ends quite quickly.
1: <laughs> who, who polices the police? That's the tagline for line of duty. That's a pretty depressing.
0: Sight. Well, exactly. You know, uh, the BHA need, need an AC-12 within them. <laughs> Without them. Without them. Interestingly. Yeah.
1: Well, can we get Steve Arnett down to the BHA?
0: Please. Can we get that done? You yeah. might end up flying out the window.
1: Uh, <laughs> Mary um, Mother and the sweet baby yeah. Jesus. That's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um yeah. yeah,
0: you know, I accept that, you know, they have a job to do and they should do it, but they their the the history of their ability to do the job. In a, in a transparent way it's been I can give you chapter and verse but I, that's from that's for the book I think
1: <laughs> and I think we're all looking forward to getting the Huey Morrison book um, do you have faith in the BHA overall
0: no I didn't I think they're because they're largely unaccountable I don't think they they they're frightened of what goes on around them um, they don't they they don't have the wherewithal to, I don't think, I don't believe to um, take the industry forward. Um, partially because they, you know, the, the they're like a civil service. They don't, they, um, but nobody's really leading them. Um, but uh, also, also, you know, they are a representative of various bodies of which the RCA i.e., the race courses on one side is a log, you know, have a totally different agenda or financial agenda to those of us on the other side, which are owners, trainers, jockeys, stable lads who need the money because the RCA, at the end of the day, get the media rights. Uh, and for some extraordinary reason, they, uh, which they, they uh, going back 20 years, they won a, they won a, a case which was deemed unlikely by the, the winners, I understand. And the only way we're going to, as an industry, go forward, I think, is if we uh, basically challenge who owns the media rights. Because my feeling is that the racecourses have had the media rights. It's been easy cash, new cash, over and above the levy. So they haven't really squeezed that pip enough. So, you know, the 100 million they get, we never know where it's come from who's got it, but I suspect it could be a lot more. And with the BHA heavily represented by the RCA, uh, um, we will never go really forward until those of us at the sharp end, who actually are the players, as opposed to the concrete, uh, until we get hold of that that part of the the financial part of the business, we're never going to go forward.
1: Well, that's I will come back to the BHA in a minute with you, but I think the media rights is a very interesting thing to discuss because uh, the, the media rights have been shrouded in secrecy, essentially. And it's the, the racecourses themselves have been able to kind of hide how much it's worth. And I was speaking to a trainer earlier today, uh, Stuart Williams, who brought up the unsolicited offer made to the five independent tracks who are the member of a, of a same organization in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, who were approached by ARC on behalf of Sky. So that all of the racecourses in Ireland had effectively agreed to stay with RMG Racing TV, and suddenly the five tracks who could break away get an offer from Sky. And what was interesting to him was the valuation. It's €100,000 per fixture. Now, with the greatest respect to those five racecourses, they've got one grade one between them and no group one on the flat. And his argument was, well, if that if those racetracks which are lesser in ireland are worth a hundred grand per fixture to sky then what are the other british race courses worth um and does that potentially raise an eyebrow amongst you and other colleagues like uh Stuart to to start asking hang on a second how much are these rights actually worth and when do we get to find out
0: Absolutely, and I think the, another example of that is the racing leagues with sort of huge amount of money for nothing, but rather uh, tedious racing on the all weather, um, and that you know the fact that the, that's an example of the BHA's uh, basically failure because they've they've given away what forty two races, which have taken out a hundred hundred races out of the calendar to uh, to that that group clever them you know they've actually whether they make six C's or not it doesn't really matter they've they've stolen 42 races <laughs> um so you know yeah there's plenty of cash out there if you if you go and if you go and ask for it um and you know, I think the worry is it's the little courses are possibly losing out as well mm. in this country um I'm a, certainly an adv- not an advocate of closing race courses because if you lose Geographic geographic areas, you lose interest in the sport. So when Folkestone went, they lost a the whole catchment area of people who like going racing. And I think you you know if the likes the small courses like the Salisbury's and things like that are devoured because the they don't provide enough prize money, because everybody else is state, feeling it would be you know great loss to racing. You know, where all all will end up is uh, yet more tedious fixtures on the all weather. You know, people don't come here to watch their horses on the all weather.
1: Well, they can't get people through the doors at Kempton. Now, to be fair, they were trying to close that track for a long time, and so they weren't really promoting it. Um, and uh,
0: well, they, they did—they were—they they, were—they could—they were trying to. They assumed at, when they opened Kempton, there was kind of thousands of people there coming down on the train. It was only you know ten years later that or fifteen years later, that they, they started. They were trying to, you know. Uh, Use the use the asset cash cash car the uh, asset and use it on something on the, something else.
1: Yeah, at some yeah. point there has to be a realization. I mean, even the racing league and I, I've gone back and forth in the racing league. Quite frankly, like I've covered it for Talksport in depth. I really enjoyed the final night of it, um, but then I, I realized that a week had gone by and I hadn't thought about it. You know, and that was an, an epic finale with Safi Osborne having the the treble and Jamie coming yeah. from the clouds to win. like There was a lot of things that were very exciting about that, but it doesn't stay with you because of what you've already said. It's moderate racing. No one's going through the doors of British and Irish racecourses to watch moderate no, that, that, racing. I, we accept the fact that it's It's a hugely important part of the sport. Not everybody can have a horse that's going to run at the Cheltenham Festival, and not yeah. every trainer can, can be competing at that level either. And it does give you a gateway into the sport, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be a massive amount of spectators turning up for it.
0: No, I, you know, racing isn't a team sport. I think that's what the fundamental issue is. Mm. And if you so, it doesn't really matter what the racing is. You know, I, I think it'd been better if it had been planted in February, not to fifties, not to sixties, and then people who are actually sitting at home in the evenings would have really could have actually got really involved with it. Uh, I think taking r- ripping the calendar apart and shoving it into August and the beginning of September. Uh, it's, it was a major backward step and a very ignorant one by the BHA because they, you know, we had a horse last year. We couldn't find a race hall for six weeks because it, we, were, we weren't at that point in, within the racing leagues. Um, you know, uh, on the integrity side of the racing leagues, the BHA have actually broken their own, own rules because we have things called team, team captains who are unlicensed, who come along to the, t- to the team players and tell them what to do. But the team players are under the jurisdiction of the PHA. So who wins over? Well, apparently, the, according to the, the the rules of the racing leagues, the team manager. So the team manager can tell somebody to wreck, run a horse he shouldn't uh, against, which might break the rules of racing.
1: That's a very interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. What I had thought of it as, and I, I appreciate everything that Rupert Bell does, and I know that he works extremely hard, uh, as I'm sure do all the team managers, and they don't get bored halfway through. Um, but... It is odd that somebody is coming along and telling you, "Listen, Huey, I know that you've got that horse lined up for the seven furlong handicap, and you're you're thinking that the horse is absolutely working the house down, but I'm going to go with this other trainer."
0: Well, that that's by and by. But you know, I could have a horse which it's I'm not particularly happy with, and the, the, the team captain said, well, "We've got nothing else; you've got to run it."
1: Oof. Yeah, that's not.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, obviously not right. the trainer wouldn't, but. The, according to the what you sign up to on the racing leagues, you do what the team captain tells you.
1: Do you feel that the racing league, as a concept, so could work? Just that if you were to change it in the calendar, not have it in the heart of the summer, it's also a bit odd that it's at a time when the Shergar Cup is going to be hosted. Like that comes along pretty. It's it's either. In the middle of it, or towards the end of it, and that even that is a little bit odd from from my perspective. That if it was held either later in the year or early in earlier in the year, that perhaps uh, it could work very well then.
0: Yeah, well, as I said, evenings, you know, your moderate horses get running around for 25, 30 grand for win, winning. is a sort of game changer to people, you know. It will be, and are we really, in, you know, when the races were class three and fours, nobody's really interested by the quality. They're interested in the the team side of it, the the, the, the that side of it. So it, it, it it's not as if you're going to see the difference between Champions League and Southern League. You're you're just, you know you're getting sort of championship type racing relative to if you put downgrade it to third division. But I you know it's not something which I don't think the the difference in quality wouldn't make a lot of difference because it's not high enough quality in the first place.
1: Well, it's it's like having Fleetwood and Shrewsbury play each other under the banner of the Champions League yeah you're building yeah. it up that it's this huge event but realistically with it's the greatest respect those horses aren't the best yeah. Um, yeah that that is that is certainly a flaw with it as well I, I think overall it's it can be a very good thing for the sport and again I've gone back and forth on it but the the timing of it I think is very interesting uh, to get back to the BHA one of yes. the many criticisms that that organization has and Listen, I've given them a right old bashing on this show uh, in in the past, and at at this point they're probably just fed up with me. But one of the legitimate criticisms has been a lack of transparency. Uh, There have been many people who have argued that there's really important decisions made without sufficient consultation or clarity. Is that an unfair criticism or an accurate one in your your view?
0: Well, we don't. I think you only have to look at the annual report, which I think you're lucky to get a page of accounts, you know summarized you don't it's, there's no breakdown i think in the irish ones about 60 70 or 80 pages on. No, so you could actually you could actually hold them to account on individuality or people managing different parts of the sport and the, B, the bha you know they got a glossy brochure with absolutely nothing in um i go back to the fact that the the integrity department that, that I, i'm afraid is unaccountable uh, we can't hold them to count. Whenever we ask them the nasty questions, difficult questions, they go silent. Uh, and our, you know, our bodies—they do the same thing to our bodies. That they—they they can do what they like. Um, and the example is: we heard a board meeting yesterday take place. Uh, great things have come out of it. What you know—that's been decided. Why? Why aren't we being told about it? You know. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all, I, th- I reckon you probably knew more what, what was going on in, in the days of the Jockey Club, which was considered un- inappropriate because it wasn't democratic. Well, we have an organization now which is, in theory, democratic, which is totally undemocratic um, in its way it, 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 way it runs itself. Uh, so, you know, you know, undemocratic, unaccountable, you know, we don't really know what's going on.
1: Well, the governance structure has, and you've kind of alluded to that as well, but that's come under a lot of criticism. Um, from
0: I think it's yeah, it's we have a I think there was in the yes an example of the new governance structure. I think the integrity subcommittee was made up of all BHA employees. There wasn't one representative of owners, trainers, jockeys, uh, stable staff on it well, what's the point of having a subcommittee if only the board and the executive members were on it? You know, that was a joke in itself. Mm. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't believe everything will happen with a with new government structure uh, if the big race courses have, are going to lose out.
1: Well, if you don't have adequate input from trainers, jockeys, stable staff, and other key stakeholders then you're going to have to question what decisions that governance structure is coming up with.
0: Absolutely and you you know trainers are are uh, the very they know what they know more what's going on because most of us are owners and probably two bigger owners uh, quite a lot of us are breeders uh, we're also stable staff at the end of the day. Uh, and so uh, and we go to racecourses regularly. So um, and we might even have a small bet. So there's a lack of, you know, lack of uh, uh, the BHA really understand and the, the people who are talking to the people who know. And they don't like talking to us because we know properly things they don't want to be <laughs> told. <talking. laughs>
1: well, there's a feeling uh, amongst fans of the sport that we're being completely forgotten about. Uh, and that's that's being felt not only from uh, BHA decision-making point of view and what the future of the sport is going to look like. but the gambling white paper I was naive enough to think when I interviewed Philip Davis last year and Greg Wood that first of all it was only going to be a few months from May 2022 that the white paper was going to come out it doesn't come out till April 2023 uh, and I was also naive enough to think that there were going to be things in it like minimum bet guarantees for for punters that there would that this document uh, would not just be rules for governance of gambling in the digital era, and revamping things, but that it would actually address head-on uh, the the lack of fairness from bookmakers and how anybody, anyone listening to this show who has had any modicum of success betting has been put through an affordability check, has been asked to supply their passport photo, their their driver's license, a real-time photograph of themselves holding a copy of today's paper like there's some kidnapping victim, uh, and possibly their DNA at this point. I mean, it's, it's so ludicrous what you're being asked for all for the right to just simply place a bet. And then when you go to place a bet, you're being told, sorry, you can't have 10 quid on it at 10 to 1. You can have a 5 or a 2 to 1. They play all these kind of games. But there was nothing done for punters in that gambling white paper. It's about trying to save people from addiction, and I'm not downplaying that. Addiction is a terrible thing. It can be very destructive. But these organizations all have mi- minimum bet guarantees in Australia with the, the various different betting companies that they run over there. They're perfectly capable of doing it in the UK. But there's no appetite from the the betting industry itself to implement such a thing, nor was there any appetite from the government. And like that's the gambling white paper. I don't expect you to comment on that. But it it goes to the further frustration amongst fans in the sports that ticket prices are at an all-time high. And yet when you go to a race course, if we're all prepared to pay that money you're paying through the nose for food. You're paying through the nose for, for food, for drink, and for any other service that you're expected to pay for at the track. And fans are feeling like they're being left behind.
0: Well, I don't, I, you know, I think that's the, the policy of race. some of the race courses on what they charge to get, for the young person to go in. It's it, it, It's just such a... In an ignorant thing to charge somebody twenty-five quid to go off to normal small days racing, you know. It's age twenty-five to thirty. That we know the twenty, the the under thirty-fives are seriously struggling at the moment, and and they're the future. And we're doing our best to switch them off. You know, it is. I luckily don't pay to go racing, except going to the Royal Enclosure at Woolaston. That's that that's horrifically expensive. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, there's a, the racecourses, you know, they've got to run a business, but they've also can, they can make it more attractive to bring, to bring the, the young in, the interested young, rather than the over affluent boozers.
1: <laughs> Indeed, Huey, we want to attract a new crowd, but sensitively, it must be the right kind of crowd. Um, in terms of the prize money situation and the media rights. I've already alluded to the fact that you can only fund your yard through the prize money, which is already pathetically low, if you're actually winning. And there are a number of trainers who are struggling for form in the UK right now. And really, it's pretty unthinkable as to how those yards are then being able to sustain themselves. Um, But it's not a charity. It's a competition. It's sport. Clearly, the media rights is something that you feel could be beneficial to trainers is there a mindset or a plan or an idea as to how to access those media rights and distribute them amongst trainers fairly?
0: Well, uh, if you're alluding to the fact that, you know, everybody who appears at racecourse should get a divvy, I, don't, I, I, I think that's always helped. Uh, having said that, you know, my view is you should um, be... be it, the media right, the ownership of the media rights should be challenged and should revert to the people who should probably have it. properly have it, which is the owners, trainers, jockeys, um, and stable staff. Uh, the racecourses having it, it, owning it is is ridiculous. Um, it, it's it's against any any other sport in the world. Um, so For some reason, it, they they acquired it about twenty years ago, and uh, obviously the big... BHA, as the runners of the sport, should challenge it. But of course, they're not going to challenge it because they are largely controlled by the Racecourse Association. So at the end of the day, the only way we're going to pro- progress if the BHA is broken up and the, the owners and trainers, et cetera, challenge uh, who owns the media rights. And then I think the media rights would, uh, the race, the We'll get more back, not only because we'd, we'd see the racecourses are running business over, over inflated businesses, but we would probably be able to challenge the bookmakers and get more money out of them on the media rights. Um, and until that happens, we're just going to dribble along with ever decreasing rewards.
1: The media rights landscape has obviously changed dramatically in a pretty short space of time. Streaming is on the rise. Uh, There's all kinds of new organizations and channels that are appearing left, right, and center. And how you consume racing as a product is very different now to how it was 20 years ago. Uh, You couldn't see a maiden Uh, in Ireland, for example. There was no Irish coverage unless when the old ATR got involved, suddenly Irish racing was on. But if you wanted to see an Aidan O'Brien horse running and making his debut, uh, you'd have to either have SIS or go into a betting shop. Nowadays, you can watch it on your phone, and you can watch endless replays of it. So the the, the rights of
0: hmm.
1: yeah the, the rights have changed dramatically in a fairly short space of time. But that then means their valuation has changed as well. And I wasn't fully aware of how the media rights came into the possession of the racecourses because it's been such a long time, Huey. Uh, and I've been doing the show for eight years. I would have assumed that that was almost always the way. But you're saying that they managed to get control of the media rights themselves. 20 years ago, or or in and about that time. What was the landscape like prior to that? Who owned the media rights and who benefited from them previously?
0: I think it was just sort of controlled by SIS, wasn't it? It just was fed into the bookmakers. So it was all part of that deal, which probably Levy and everything like that. But I think it got challenged. It got challenged in the European Court by William Hill. And to their absolute amazement, they got the media, you know, they got control of it, which meant that it went to the race courses as opposed to us. I'm not... My, my, I'm a bit great. My knowledge of how the racecourses seem to own it now, or as much as they do or control it, is, is, um, is a bit wishy-washy. But I do know that we da- the people who should have it don't have it.
1: <laughs> was that the period of time where you'd walk into a bookmaker's and they wouldn't actually have racing on? You could bet on it, but they'd have off-tube commentary. You couldn't see it because certain bookmakers wouldn't pay. And it was a whole, whole kerfuffle.
0: I think that's what sort of happened afterwards, but um, uh, but I think you know, you know. Well, yeah, I remember going into bookmakers. Well, that's why we went into a bookmaker, wasn't it? Uh, listened Listen to the race, listen to the commentary, and then and then they started showing them on screen. So we went to the bookmakers even more. Um, uh, it's only in the last year or two that it's yeah. The only reason I have an account, really a betting account, so I could watch on my phone. Mm. <laughs>
1: Well, clearly, this isn't sustainable. Is there some kind of a plan in action between you and your colleagues to try to get access to the meteorites, maybe even take control of them?
0: Not to my knowledge. Um, I, I, I think there. there's maybe some people who think about think in that re- respect, but you know, it's going to cost a lot of money, and the only only per- body can do that is really a racing authority who can who controls who's prepared to spend 25 30, 50 million on challenging it legally um, when I mentioned that the BHA at the NTF meeting this year they they said well it was never, it's not going to happen because it's going to cost 25 million so my re, my response was well actually you'd probably get a hundred million back in the first year so I, I think you your argument looked rather weak they look embarrassed then because they it was their excuse not to challenge it because they are controlled by the race courses i don't know if anybody going to do that you know the the owner the roa is not a strong enough body to do that it doesn't represent the big owners uh and the trainers don't have the wherewithal to do it so and and of course the rca know that don't they
1: which puts them in an incredibly strong position that despite the fact that there could be an awful lot more gravy out there to be able to squeeze. uh, If you just leverage the, Oh, it's going to cost 25 million to do it. They're not going to care about the fact that they might get a hundred million back um, because it it puts an an enormous amount of pressure on things. Um, In terms of the sport overall, uh, the fixture list has been mentioned and you, you talked about that earlier and how they have, they have agreed a way of revamping the fixture list, but they don't want to tell us what it is. Uh, and, and clearly, there are a lot of issues that are facing the sport. There's a loss of equine talent uh, to foreign countries and other jurisdictions, which results in declining field sizes. That's also, also a consequence of the lack of prize money. There's decreasing attendance at race courses as well. I've had the opinion for a long time, and I think many people would echo that, that there is just too much racing. The fixture list is way too bloated, and it requires trimming down and it seems as though the bha well we know they wanted to do it last year and they were blocked by the roa and to a certain extent by the race courses they're now in a position to be able to make those changes i can understand why they haven't come out and told us exactly what those are yet because if you're floating ideas and they haven't been agreed upon yet maybe you don't want them in the public domain but it's not a good look and it's again just seems to be a lack of transparency Uh, but how important is reducing the fixture list to your mind
0: I think it's it's not as important as everybody try make out. I think the issue is the general financing of the industry. Uh, We need to get the industry financed properly, and then the the rest will uh, everything will come out of that. You're just reducing the fixture list and shooting the small race courses or. isn't kind of isn't the way forward, I don't think doubt yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's been sold as the way forward but I don't think it may, I don't think it's actually going to help us hugely in the longer run.
1: So I, I suppose the overall viewpoint would be uh, if you trim down the fixture list, you will get the better horses to take each other on on a more regular basis. You won't have uh, as many small field sizes because there will be an opportunity for more race horses to, to take each other on. But the ROA are against this and have threatened to sue, and certain racecourses have threatened to sue the BHA as well. Um, what is your overall defence then of, of not trimming it down?
0: Well, the, the argument that if you uh, if you make the the bigger the the, uh, the races at the top more competitive, um, you, yeah, you the owner tra- owner are less likely to win, so there's an even greater incentive to, to sell them abroad. Uh, maybe point. it goes back to handicaps, um, um, squashed handicaps. You know, I, kind of, I don't know, what was it, 15 years ago when it was brought in that handy You know, we used to have uh, a naught to 80. Now it's a 66 to 81 or something. You know, it's only a £14 span. We need bigger span, spans for handicaps. Um, uh, so I don't think it, that, that would help, but I don't... I don't think making racing more competitive at the top end is going to make any any difference. We need to make fundamental changes to the whole system because the reason we don't have horses running in the big in the group race and listen races for colts different for fillies, um is a pure example like I ran a horse in the craven the other day we were well beat we beat one home and we went up a stone for it so you know what you know what's the sense that's 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 the problem. <laughs>
1: So you tilted at a big race. It didn't work out. The horse was well beaten, and your reward was to go up in the handicap.
0: We went up thirteen pounds. We went from eighty-one to ninety-four, which on the mathematics was fine, but um, on the on the future of that horse and the racing industry, it was an incredibly negative thing to do. You know, the, the handicapper is doing his job. The handicapper, I think, spends too much time sitting at home playing mathematics nowadays. Um, I think there should be more. They should spend more time. Get, they don't have enough time, to, apparently, to go to the race course and actually look at the horses in the paddock. You know, take a view. This this is actually a, not a very good race. Second, mm-hmm. third, and fourth look rough. They don't look well. You know, you, there's got to be a bit bit of judgment like that going on, not just pure mathematics. Um, but, you know, it's going away from the fact that a, a, t- a smaller... Fixtureless and fewer race at the top will not help the, the industry because be all it will mean is that the better horses will go even quicker.
1: <laughs> yeah, and look, assuming your horse is able to run to form and maybe wins next time out obviously he'll go up in the handicap again depending on, on the quality of that race, but let's say your horse doesn't excel uh, let's say that horse struggles off this new weight for a while, how long will it take for the BHA to realise, uh oh, we massively overvalued that race because it was the Craven uh, and we've given that horse too much of a burden. How long does it take for them to fairly lower the weight to give that horse a chance to be able to get back into the winner's enclosure?
0: Well, basically you just have to run it when it's wrong because most horses will run to a a reasonable level. You know, if you run fifth, sixth, not beaten a long way, which is running quite well, if you're badly handicapped, you'll get dropped one, possibly two. So you probably, that takes you six or seven runs. So that's probably, that's probably a 40 grand investment uh, when you're talking about entries, training fees. Um, otherwise, you just run it when it's out of form and you know you run it out of form. That's, the, that's what our system thrives on, handicaps. You win races, you go up the handicap, and then you have to run down the field to get, get competitive again. Or, or you sell, you sell the horse and roll the dice again. That is the sort of that's the game here, but if you go up a stone for just making the in, helping the industry and throw away three races, you you're basically shooting your industry in the foot.
1: Well, if that's an agreed principle and most trainers feel that way, how does that benefit the integrity of the sport?
0: Well, exactly, and you know three three year old make uh, handicaps. Uh, not really are, have become a farce, really. You know, you need, if to win, an, to, to win a to 85 you need a horse rated 85 running off 65s.
1: So if trainers, and I'm going to put this out as a hypothetical, if trainers have come to the conclusion that the only way that you can fairly get your horse down the ratings with the BHA is to run that horse when you know it, the horse can't run to its absolute optimum, and so can't obtain its best possible finishing position. Yeah. Does, yeah. Doesn't it, that then sure. make people? Doesn't that then make people who are looking? And I'm not accusing any British trainer of this, by the way. I just want to make an overall point here. The Irish Racing Authority are about to throw Ronan McNally out of the sport. They haven't actually implemented that rule yet, but he's about to be thrown out of the sport. The BHA did, though. The BHA used their authority to take what Irish Racing had done and went, yeah, he's gone immediately. So that man is thrown out of the sport. Now, he engaged in some fairly illicit practices, and there were some things that that were done there that absolutely deserve punishment. Whether or not... I I don't believe for a second run of McNally deserves a 10-year ban from the sport, and he's ruined. He can never go to any race meeting in the Republic of Ireland or the UK for the next 10 years. And the reality is, is that man ever going to get that license back? No. So he's he's been ruined by this sport. But there are plenty of trainers in Ireland and there are listeners to this show who will tell you who are doing similar to what he was doing. And clearly that's happening in the UK as well. But the IHRB and the BHA both go... Yeah, uh, anyway, nothing to see here. Move on uh, because this is... So it's, it's a double standard that somebody like Charles Burns does something which is unethical and gets banned, and fined, and it's a high-profile story, and it goes out there. Yet it's a common practice for trainers to have to run a horse when they're not fully right, not at peak, which is basically the same thing, but they're being forced into doing that because the handicapping system is so broken.
0: Yeah. At the end of the day, I suppose it is, yeah. You know, horses are, I suppose, on the you, you can, you know, horses... As especially get older and less, with less ability, as a, you know, the horses with less ability will run. They come, they come in and out of form, um, and you might, you know, as a trainer, you'll say, "Well, I'm, you know, he ran perfectly well at home. He, you know, he's nothing wrong with him, and he runs four races down, down the field. Then suddenly, he finds his form again. So, that does happen. Uh, and but it's a it is a process which, is especially when you're going chasing and all the problems that can happen if you get of injuries there, that it's is—it's somehow a difficult one to live with on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, of course. And if the BHA were to have handicappers actually there at the race course assessing the horses in the parade ring and then seeing the race live, that it's not just that you're looking at their own internal database, the racing TV and the sky cameras and and watching it at home on a high HD TV, that actually being at the track... Do you feel that could help, or are there other potential things that the BHA could do uh, to handicap in a in a fairer way?
0: I think it's it it is very difficult. It, you know, we have a system in place where handicapping is the mainstay of racing. Um, makes it interesting. Makes it interesting to the punter. You know, it should encourage people to go racing because you should go to the. If you go racing, you can have a look at the horse in the paddock and look at its fit. You can look at its shiny its coat. You think, oh well, it might be that might be it might be its day. So, uh, I think if we took away, you know, we've the industry has a a problem in terms of the handicap. In it relies on the handicap and and there isn't a solution which will keep the you know the horses in training and the. The punter, the 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 enthusiast, interested.
1: How do you feel about bloodstock agents?
0: I think bloodstock agents are an interest. uh, I think somebody said to me once, um, basically they're frustrated trainers. (laughs) They have the probably the stupidity to take out a license. (laughs) I yeah. I don't think there are many big agencies nowadays You can be playing with the amount of money which they do, which are totally unregulated I don't, as they are. I don't like regulation, but uh, I hear that football agents have to do a sort of money laundering course now, which you know, I think there should be something which uh, means they have to prove they, can, they should be out there. You know, it's easy to be, anybody can set up as an agent.
1: Well, that led to the whole fiasco with those horses who were bought by the uh, the Knight Bloodstock Agency on behalf of a new owner. And he was able to just wander in and buy left, right, and center. And those horses have only since, it's only since been resolved that those horses have gone to new ownership because it turns out that the guy didn't have any money. Um, And in, in an era where you're being asked to prove that you can afford to have a bet after surpassing one hundred and fifty pounds threshold, if you've lost one hundred and fifty quid, you have to prove that you can place another bet. It's pretty extraordinary that somebody can go in and splash theoretical millions at a bloodstock sale and not have to prove that they have the funds to, to be able to go and actually pay for those horses.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, but that sort of there's a uh, the the responsibility there, and the first in the first place probably should um, lays at the. Um, auction houses rarely—they accept. They—it's up to them to strengthen their own due diligence on people, I suppose. Um, so, I think it's the fact that, as you mentioned uh, mentioned earlier, if I if I have a nice maiden winner, I always get two or three telephone calls within twenty four hours uh, asking me for sale, and you know and the next thing they're doing they're asking for 5% of it even though it's not for sale and you know it's 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 it, it's easy money for people who, who you don't know what they're up to
1: well are they asking for that 5% before a fee has been agreed or are they telling you what the fee will be and that they would take 5% as as in is it almost they, they would make pre- preordained
0: Right. even though you you have put this on the market they will be asking for 5% themselves not all of
1: them, but some of them will be. Wow. So they haven't facilitated anything. They've done nothing, but they're like, yes, yeah. so I'm, I'm going to make this happen and you're going to give me 5% for the privilege. Yeah. That's a,
0: that's, that is a, a regular occurrence.
1: Because a lot of people would look at the sales rings and the TDN's reporting of it and it's 400 grand for, for this son of ten sovereigns and it's half a million for the son of Dubawi and it's like, where is this money coming from? And at the very top end, at the very upper echelon of the sport, where money's no object for owners, they're able, to, of course, to go in, and uh, and buy as much as they want as for as long as they want, with, with great regularity. Um, that's not obviously a true reflection of society today, and it's certainly not a true reflection of the racing industry. As we've already discussed, how crippling the finances are, are currently um, but do those, do certain bloodstock agents then badly affect the sport in that they are buying for a certain type of owner who is only going to deal with a certain type of trainer which further squeezes out middle to lower trainers
0: um, I, I, I I have to be careful what one that is I think uh you i think that does happen Mm. yeah like you know like in lots of ways of life you know you you help me i help you you know um though in transparency in that respect in most businesses can't happen nowadays uh if you
1: could do something to Change how bloodstock agents influence the game, or something that would make it a fairer system. Is there an idea that you have? Have you thought about something that could be brought in that could correct this I, imbalance?
0: I think it's a bit like the handicap system. That if there was a good, if there was a solution, be, it, it would, be, would have been implemented by now. Um, uh, you know, where we must remember the buying and selling horses is very much an international business. Now. So you can't really control it in the UK. The BHA sort of had a sort of stab at it a few years ago, but you can't really control control what's going on because it's an you know the trading is international. Uh, Money money passes hands all around the world, and there's no regulation as far as I can work within any as far as I'm aware within any any country about the, um, the trading of resources.
1: And on that, just how difficult is it to acquire bloodstock talent these days? Because 20 years ago, Graham Wiley would have been buying a smart middle-distance handicapper off the flat with the idea of that being a dual-purpose horse that could potentially win the Ebor, which he absolutely loves, uh, or being able to compete for him at the Cheltenham Festival. And that would be what a a number of owners did. Um, JP McManus still gets access to the middle-distance prospects from Ballydoyle that don't quite make it to Group 1 level But even he has scaled that down a little bit. How difficult is it in this day and age to acquire a a smart middle distance prospect off the flat to be able to go jumping with or to be able to continue on the flat with, given the amount of money that is available in other jurisdictions?
0: Yeah, I think basically, you know, that the days of buying a a horse, which is sort of um, sort of nearly group class or listed class. Uh, mile and a quarter, mile and horse, half horse to go jumping just doesn't happen anymore because it's worth that sort of horse is worth three quarters of a million to go to Australia.
1: So has that has that changed your philosophy of how you buy a racehorse or the type of horse that you try to acquire?
0: Oh, but I think definitely, I think you know you see some shrewd trainers doing that, buying, staying horses, you know, uh, setting up syndicates, and in the hope that one or two will come good and they will, you know, they'll make it, they'll actually get out and make can roll it over again. Um, in previous, you know, 30 years ago, you were buying a horse, a middle distant horse and you'd still have it probably when it was six or seven. If you didn't, it would be running around. I hope it them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the dream, Huey. That is very much the dream. Um, two more questions for you. The negative, the impact of Brexit. Um, just how negative has that has Brexit been for racing, or to be fair about it, has Brexit, Brexit actually had a benefit for trainers?
0: I the only thing which I've noticed notable no effect is the additional cost and aggro of going to running a horse uh, aggravation running a horse in Europe, outside the UK. That you know, we that the admin's gone up. We have to do. You have to pay centered on the carne and you can't we talk unless your lorry has been approved by a foreign jurisdiction you can't take it there I somehow feel it's it's a bit one-way traffic though I think you know especially I, I know it's not easy to bring horses over from Ireland but um, I think it might have it's easier bringing over the set it doesn't seem to be particularly difficult bringing horses over to the sails um, and uh, it but it's definitely on a breeding purpose it's made it much more difficult as well taking it we got a mare in France because uh, our, our old stand, horse which is standing there is there but it's you know, that was very difficult to to work it we just leave the mare there now so uh, it's just grind the wheels down a bit
1: yeah, I, I think there had to be a special dispensation and some sort of special agreement made between Britain and Ireland. And that dispensation had to be given by Europe because of the unique relationship between our two countries. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's now plain sailing for British horses to come to Ireland. And it clearly isn't. And it's definitely not plain sailing for the British trainers to get to France. I interviewed Hugo Palmer last year. Um, and he had brought a sprinter over for a race in Paris Longchamp. They were six and a half hours. In a queue, waiting to get through from from the ferry onwards, it was it's absolutely crazy. Um, I, uh, mean, meanwhile, the Irish horses were flying through, no problem.
0: Yeah, uh, I, th- I I do think that, you know we took a horse to France the other day and it was very we had we felt it was much smoother. You know, the horse left ran in the four o'clock in France when it was back home in our yard at three o'clock three o'clock in the morning. I th- you know, they were only. You know, you, have to, you get an inspection when you arrive and when you leave by a vet at the port, which didn't used to happen. And that was made much more, that's, that's I feel, I think it's got easier this year. So may maybe as as sort of the, the powers that be have stopped throwing their toys out of the pram, people are just becoming a bit more sensible.
1: Which is very much a good thing to hear. Uh, the final one for you is the animal rights activists. And their protests. How do you feel? Do you are you worried that their message is being amplified by certain aspects of the media, and that their message, as misguided as they are, that their message is managing to permeate and actually get through to the general public? Uh, and do you I, see them yeah, as a threat to our sport?
0: It's always been a quiet minority uh, group of people out there who, you know, don't like horse racing or you know don't like animals and humans having fun together and that's and this just sort of brings it brings it out on the surface I, having said that i think the media are more interested in these sort of stories whether it's in politics or racing they actually miss them they're not really interested in the real stories out there anymore um, and as a result nothing ever 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 going to happen nowadays because to me it's so easy through the media and that's not just i'm calling journalists but through the social media to destroy anything which might have a, a better long-term effect rather than short-term gain
1: well you have a choice to make now uh, for the eps for epsom huey you can uh, attend derby day and do your job and have runners there and try and win the dash and Uh, compete and be part of the pageantry or you could attend the Vegan Alternative Festival which they plan to host outside of Epsom where maybe you could compete in the Eggless Spoon Race and uh, you and and the women in your life can compete in the Fancy Dress Competition uh, where people will wear fancy hats but feathers are banned because that's unethical.
0: Yes, well, we all have um, our own views about life and that probably wouldn't be one on the top of my agenda.
1: (laughs) Yeah, somehow I doubt that the 70,000 people who are on their way to Epsom will just decide, oh, wait, eggless spoon race, three-legged race, that sounds amazing. Oh, open mic woke comedy? Sign Mm. me up. I I doubt very much that they will get anywhere even approaching the attendance that uh, Epsom gets, but it'll certainly be worth keeping an eye on. if there was one power that I could grant you to change things in racing, what would be the one change that you would make right
0: now? Oh, I think I think I'd, um, as the 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 media rights, the sources of income should be controlled by a body which is uh, and the by the people who basically own the horses, because they're the players, aren't
1: they? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think... Race, yeah. The race, but are over bloated. You know, when I hear what some of the chief executives and the various layers of administration which goes on in them, it's it's quite frightening, really.
1: Well, when that money is being dispersed in the way that it is, and look, those racecourses can do what they want with their money. That's ultimately it's theirs. However, you're a trainer. You've alluded to a staffing crisis earlier on. You have to pay for work writers, stable staff. Uh, you need talented people to be around your horses, and the more trainers I speak to, the more I, I realize that this stable staffing crisis is becoming much more of of a crisis than it was. It was already bad before the pandemic; it, it appears to be pretty brutal now.
0: Uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, it's it, it's not just the it's the bigger trainers they, um, I think, significantly affected by it as well. But it, it it is a worldwide
1: problem. Yeah, that is certainly true. But I, I think that there would be a number of trainers like yourself who would argue, well, if there's money out there for an executive to be on a high six-figure salary, and well done to them, that's great. Well, then surely there can be money to ensure that we're able to pay people a fair wage so that they can work in the industry that they love. Because hearing stories, and this happens in Ireland as well, it happens a lot in Ireland. Um, I've spoken to a number of trainers who have lost stable staff to the service industry. yeah, And and they didn't want to go work in a bar. They didn't want to go work in a restaurant. That's the last thing they wanted to do. But it pays better. And the working hours are better.
0: Well, the, the society has missed a trick for the last 30 years. And you could probably blame the unions for as much as anybody wants to do. I'm not paid enough. Well, the people who sit in offices Playing, playing with computers are relatively played too, too well and you know racing is just a, another fallout of that sort of problem you know and you know we need to pay you know riding a racehorse is dangerous and it's skilled and relative to what people are earning doing pretty sedentary jobs it's not still not paid well enough
1: well said. Well said. Huey, I could speak to you for hours and we could listen to you for hours. Um, I, I really appreciate your insight and I really appreciate your time on the Final Forum podcast.
0: Well, I, absolutely. Well, I'd much enjoy it. I'll probably
1: get locked after this. But, um... <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> there will be many listeners who are going, ah, come on, Kennedy. Do a stable tour with them. You know, we, we get it. Times are tough in racing, but we want to hear about who's going to win the Gold Cup. We want to hear about who Huey's got for a Royal Ascot handicap. So if you'd indulge us in a couple of weeks' time to do a stable tour with you, we'd, we'd love to do that.
0: Well, we got, we're not going to tell you what's going to win the handicap, because we might get five pounds extra. <laughs>
1: okay. We'll we'll have to rework that. We'll have to be a little bit cleverer about how we extract that information from you, but we'll certainly try.
0: It's all about timing, that one
1: absolutely week before (laughs) i'll ask it so um yui thank you so much for your time and very best to look for the rest of the season looking forward to talking to you again
0: very good nice to speak
1: i hope you've enjoyed this episode of the final front podcast if you have make sure you hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode of the show and a five star rating on your favorite podcast app would be much appreciated it's a huge help with the algorithm more great content coming your way thanks for listening be safe be well look after yourself and each other god bless